Welcome, I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the sacred scripture, but through the lens of our apostolic tradition. That is, the tradition that goes back to the apostles who received it from our Lord Jesus. Now, we love to have you be part of our program. You can add your own questions and comments during the live show, either by coming to our studio audience, like some of these folks have done, and you can also call in. If you're not here in Alabama, you can still call. And if you're in North America, it is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. 800 numbers don't work outside North America, so you can call uh, from any other place besides North America to uh, country code 1, area code 205-271-2980. You can also send us questions and comments by email, writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com. You can also follow us and participate with the show live on Facebook and YouTube. But again, the live show is Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Now, today we are going to take a look at Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. This is when our Lord Jesus crosses over to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and just like he did on the western side, which is where Jewish people lived. He began his ministry on the eastern side with an exorcism. And this was in the territory of the Gerasenes. The eastern side of the Sea of Galilee was inhabited mostly by Gentiles. Non-Jewish people lived there. We'll talk more about that. But uh, now you can get my book, Praying the Gospels, Jesus, Miracles at Galilee. That's available still at EWTNRC.com, where's item number 52885. However, today's material is not in there. I don't know why. The editors took it out. I had written it for them. They, I, I think they wanted to keep the book short. I always like to make it long, just like my homilies, make it too long. And so, so it's out. But you are getting an extra added bonus because I'm putting it back in this series. So we'll be talking about the Gerasene demoniac in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Now let's take a look at the first meditation here. This is when our Lord Jesus Christ enters the territory of the Gerasenes. We read in Mark chapter 5, verse 1, They, that is, Jesus and the apostles, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And again, as I already mentioned, this is the east side of the Sea of Galilee. It was primarily inhabited by Gentiles, not by Jewish people. The capital city of the region was called 
Gerasa. Gerasa. Uh, you can see a photograph of some of the ruins of ancient Gerasa. Behind it is the modern city. Now, in, it's in the kingdom of Jordan today. And uh, this is the main street on this picture. And they've, the city became uninhabited after an earthquake. There was a very, very serious earthquake in the region. And a number of cities collapsed and were uninhabited after them. Gerasa is one of them. Scythopolis, which is over near Bet-Sha'an, on the Israeli side, it's another one. And even Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus said to Peter, uh, you are rocking on this rock, I'll build my church. That town also suffered in the earthquake. And very importantly, the spring of water that helps to form the Jordan. Part of the mountain collapsed into the spring. So now it, it looks different than it did in the old days. But um, in the old days, that spring went so far down, nobody had ever gone to its source, you know, down to the bottom of it. It's really, really deep. But this chunk of mountain collapsed into it, so that's that. And this is one of the things you can see over there. There are two theaters. Uh, one is an Odeon where they had music concerts in ancient times. These are ancient theaters. And another one for putting on plays, Roman paved streets, waterworks, sewers. They had sewers with running water, which is amazing, you know, that uh, took till the 19th century to get that again in uh, the, uh, Europe. And this is a, a cool place. Now, that's the capital of the region during the Roman administration. General Pompey had organized that part of the area uh, as a territory called the Decapolis, which means the Ten Cities. And it was a Gentile uh, polity. And then you see something a little bit different about this same episode in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. It says, when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demoniacs came out of the tombs to meet him. They were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now, notice that it refers to the Gadarenes instead of the Gerasenes. What's, the, what's going on here? Which one was it? Well, it's both. Gadara is another town within the region. So Gerasa, Jarash, today, is the city that is the capital. But you can also see, we have a map on there, where it mentions it has a place for Gadara. So look at Gerasa as the general capital, and then as one of the towns which also has great ruins, but they were also knocked down in the same earthquake as Gerasa. But you can still go to Geras, Gadara. Today it's called in Arabic, Um Qais. Um Qais. And it's a pretty cool town. They have a church dedicated to the 
story of this demoniac. So uh, it, it's, it's pretty cool. It's ruins. You know, again, it fell down in the earthquake and it was rebuilt. So that's what's going on there. That's why it's Gadara in Matthew, because he was more familiar with the small town where the guy was actually from, while uh, in uh, Mark, who was writing in Rome, he put it in the terms of the Roman uh, provincial capital, the regional capital. So that, that's all that's going on. Now, this is the first of Jesus' miracles on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And we look at Mark chapter 5, verses 2 to 5, where it says, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces. So a shackle is the piece that goes around your wrist, and then you attach a chain to it. And he pulled the chains apart and shattered the shackles. Now imagine that. These are made out of metal, usually out of iron. And he would be able to endure the pain in his arm of hitting the shackle against a rock or something, of which there are plenty in the region. And uh, he broke it and it got out of, uh, was stayed out of control. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. Now, this is a more detailed description of a possessed person than anywhere else in the Gospels. This is the most complete description of a possessed person. And we should pay attention to it a little bit more closely. For instance, he lived among the tombs. Now, tombs in Jewish thought were inherently unclean. And even if you're not Jewish, most human beings do not like hanging around cemeteries. It's not what people like to do normally. Uh, there's a respect for the dead and sometimes a fear of the dead in some cultures and some people. So um, this is something that makes him unclean. And of course, the demon would have him living with, in an unclean situation. Also, and this is typical of possession, spirit possession, that uh, when a person is fully possessed and they don't have control of their will, they often have superhuman strength. And in this case, he could break the chains and the fetters with a superhuman strength that's not normal. Uh, and he also could endure a lot of pain. Also, it, uh, in Mark chapter 5, verse 15, it says that they saw the demoniac sitting there clothed and in his right mind. After the exorcism, he was clothed and in his right mind. 
this is something that St. Luke makes more clear in chapter 8, verse 27, where it says, for a long time he had worn no clothes and he did not live in a house, but in the tombs. So he was naked. Um, and this is something uh, I remember Archbishop Sheen saying that one of the signs of the demonic is nudity. No, not when you're taking a shower, but you know, in, in going around in public. This is a sign of something evil, uh, you know, showing off your nakedness. Remember, wh why would that be? Remember how the serpent you know, tried to get Ad Eve in particular, but also Adam, you know, not to have shame for breaking any of God's law, but when they did disobey God, they felt shame. And that the evil spirit wants us to deny the natural response of shame. And this is something, when, when I think of the pornographic industry and human trafficking and such as that, you know, it's not hard to understand the demonic quality of all that. And this is something very important to help get people not to be involved in that. And there are a couple things too that we should think about with this in terms of modern life. First, the demoniac lived among the tombs. Think about the way that modern life, modern world, has become fascinated with death. It was the National Socialist Workers' Party, otherwise known as Nazis, for short. They were the ones who had death camps. The Communist Workers' Party, they also had death camps, places where they set up uh, homes purely to kill people. And 10 million people died in camps, 6 million Jews and 4 million other people. And they were dehumanized in the process. And not only Jews, but gypsies and homosexuals were rounded up and put in these camps. Uh, clergy were rounded up and put in camps. About a third of all priests in Poland were executed uh, in camps or just outright sometimes in the churches. So this fascination with death is part of it. In Soviet Union, under communism, 61.9 million people were killed by the state. And they were starved to death, worked to death, usually a combination of both. Pol Pot, the communist leader of Cambodia had what were called the killing fields. Nearly half the population of his own country were killed by the state. If you had eyeglasses, you were executed. If you spoke French, you were executed. This is uh, some of the things they did. And then think about how we have politicians, some of whom, you know, profess to be Catholic, 
and they're focused on death as political policy, killing the unborn, cutting children in wombs into pieces by cutting off their arms and legs and crushing their skulls. That is demonic. Trying to say that, well, old people, you know, we'll, we'll show them mercy. We'll call it mercy killing even. And execute them when they're old and sick. There was just a woman on uh, an ABC program who said, we have to rename abortion as mercy. This is what, how they talk. This is demonic speech. This is evil. It's Satan's fascination with death. Think also about the perversion of an understanding of death. And uh, for instance, with vampires and zombies as entertainment, vampires are a beautification of death. They sleep in a coffin, but then they come out at night and bite other people to drink their blood. Zombies are people that, were, that died from disease and come back, and then they try to eat your flesh. This is a demonic perversion of Jesus Christ who came back from the dead in order to give us his flesh to eat and his blood to drink in the sacrament. Whereas the world perverts that by vampires who drink your blood and zombies who eat your flesh. This is a demonic perversion of Christ and what he did for our salvation. As I mentioned, the nudity um, of the, this demoniac fits the way that our society promotes pornography and, you know, some awful things, you know, I, I um, heard a lot that when, when this uh, Fifty Shades of Grey came out, um, you know, it, it was about inflicting pain in, in sexuality. And people were watching, they called it, um, you know, soccer mom porn. You know, that was one of the nicknames of this. Um, this is something that is going on. And, you know, because of pornography and prostitution, human trafficking now accounts for nearly 45 million people being in slavery. Contrast that with the, the horrors of the African slave trade when from 1619 until 1810, 12 million slaves were brought from Africa to both North and South America, not just the United States, but to both North and South America, 12 million slaves. Today, there's almost uh, four times as many slaves in the world, but they're for sex. This is something that is horrendous. It's great evil that continues into the modern world. Uh, the openness of our border is part of that. So one of the things I would ask as you consider this, ask, this description of the demoniac, to consider ways that we see in the, this, what the world likes to call a new normal, human trafficking across our border and around the world, 
and pornography as a norm, all these new norms. Consider this that you, and the way that you might take it for granted. Take that we just still have this part of the culture. We need to examine our own consciences and examine how we take for granted a culture of death and of sexual exploitation. Consider that. How do we participate in either way? How do we participate in the culture of death or in sexual exploitation? And imagine our Lord Jesus coming into our modern world like he crossed over the sea to the territory of Gadara and Gerasa. What would he say as he came out of the boat into the modern world? What would he say about the use of death in the modern world and sex? And speak to him about what you see in the modern situation. What might he say to you? What would you say to him about it? And I would suggest that we conclude such a meditation with the Lord's Prayer, included within our Father. And in case, in some cases where we participated more in those realities, maybe an act of contrition. This would be an important way for us to deal with some of the situation in our world and the way that it's like that world of this demoniac. We're going to take a break. We'll come back in a couple of minutes, so please stay with us. taking a look at a second meditation on this passage in Mark 5. This is where the demoniac encounters Jesus our Lord. And we see this in Mark chapter 5, verses 6 to 10. When the demoniac saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. So this is where the satanic comes head on. Now remember, this is not our Lord's first time to come up on the satanic, is it? During the temptation in the wilderness, he had met Satan and was tempted by him. There are a number of things about this passage. First, the presence of Jesus, just before he says anything, 
then when he does give a command, we see a couple responses from the demon. The first is kind of strange. The demons run up to him and they bow down before him. This, you know, and worship him. They recognize his divinity. And this very much uh, fits what we see, for instance, in the letter of James, chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons have more of a grasp of truth than most atheists. At least they recognize the truth that God exists and that he's to be worshipped. But this is something that they don't do with the right way. And in fact, many other times, the demons identified Jesus as the Son of God, as this one did too. Notice he says, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Doesn't call him Jesus, Son of Joseph. No, calls him Jesus, Son of the Most High God. They are in another realm, and we see how Jesus is identified as the Son of God in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, when he cast the demon out of the demoniac in the synagogue. Also in Mark 3, 11, Luke 4, verses 34 to 35, uh, and 41, Acts 16, verses 17 to 18, they all recognize who Jesus Christ is because they're living, they, they're pure spirits. They still have the intellect of their angelic nature. And they know exactly who Jesus is. And they recognize him. Now, our Lord does not want a profession of faith from them. They're not the ones that he wants people to believe. Uh, and Jesus doesn't ever pay attention to anything they say. This is very important. You, we don't engage the demonic spirits in an argument. Even when they're true, even when they say true things, you don't do that because even when they have true things in their mouths, they still come out of a context of wickedness. The true things they speak are still in the wrong context. And they're trying to use the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Jesus Christ, for their own purposes so that they can get control of the situation. They want to be the ones who can use knowledge to intimidate Jesus, the apostles, and anybody else around them. That is their M.O., uh, modus operandi. Um, and so this is uh, something that we have to keep in mind. And their goal in this case, as in so many other cases, when they speak true things, is they don't want to have their own demonic nature exposed, and they don't want to be exercised. And by trying to use true statements... They try to avoid being put under the control of God. This is something that's also true, not only of possessed people, but people who are agents of the satanic. 
People can be agents of evil without being possessed. Possession means the evil spirit has complete control over their free will. And that's fairly rare. But even without that total control of the free will, the evil spirits can manipulate some people and use them for satanic ends. So, for instance, as the Gospels and other writings of the New Testament make clear, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. We see in John 8, I think verse 41. He is a murderer. So the use of murder and death, whether with drugs, abortion, euthanasia, that's satanic tricks. And he is an accuser who constantly accuses. Think about the way in our cancel culture, names are people who are not racists at all are just, that's used as a way to shut them down. That kind of accusatory approach has a satanic quality. If somebody really is a racist, they need to be called out. But just as a way to shut them down and cancel them, this is part of our culture and it has a satanic element that combines deceit and lies with accusation. This is a very important kind of process for us to stay alert to uh, satanic tricks in our own culture. The evil spirits will never speak truth for the good of the possessed person or anybody else. They'll always do it to distort humanity. And Jesus is always more powerful than the spirits. No matter how much, how powerful they might seem to humans, Jesus is always more uh, powerful. He demonstrates that by demanding to know the Spirit's name. And that, by the way, is still part of the official rite for exorcism. Remember how in Genesis 2.19, when the Lord God had formed all the animals of the field and birds of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So the power to name is part of human nature and human superiority. And Christ shows superiority over the spirits by demanding to know their name. It also shows the limited, limited power that the evil spirits have. Think back on 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have conquered them, that is the evil spirits. Why? Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. Jesus Christ, who is within us, is greater than the evil spirit who is in the world. And we have to keep that clearly in mind as we face forces of evil. Christ is always stronger. Now the demoniac answers, my name is Legion, for we are many. And, you know, a, a Roman legion was at its ideal 6,000 soldiers. Um, and you know, oftentimes it was less than that, you know, 4,000 sometimes and 5,000, but, you know, it still was a large number. And he says that we are legion. 
And this helps to explain the schizophrenia of the demonic, that Jesus uh, you know, has them say, you know, uh, my name is Legion, that it's my name, but there are thousands of us. But Jesus forces them to expose that. And further, their weakness is shown in verse 10, when the Spirit begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. This is something that they know they don't have power to stop Jesus from doing what he wanted with them. And they were afraid to leave the country because they knew that hell was even worse than being in a possessed person. Possessing a human was a lot better than existing in hell, where it's even more lonely. We talk a lot about the hellfire and such, but we also have to keep in mind the absolutely radical, radical aloneness, the loneliness and absolute isolation due to mutual hatred that dominates hell. You will not be, you may be there with your friends from earth, but you will never be their friends in hell. They will hate you and blame you for putting them there. And you'll do the same. So this is something that we very much have to deal with. And, you know, in this context, we should, uh, we can take a look at how the, Forces of evil try to intimidate people. They try to use force. The Roman Empire killed and crucified, burned alive, and executed Christians, fed them to the wild beasts. Barbarians came and killed many Christians, destroyed churches. But Pope Leo the Great stood up to the most vicious of those barbarians, Attila the Hun. He and his soldiers rode around with the heads of their enemies on their spears. That's what they used. Um, this was part of what they did. In England, when the Tudors turned against the church, the Henry VIII and Edward, his son, uh, Elizabeth, his daughter, and then James Stuart and others, they confiscated Catholic property, beheaded various people, hung, drew, and quartered them. You know, they'd pull their intestines out while they're still alive and burn them, and then have horses pull them apart in four directions from their arms and legs. The Republican government of the French Revolution uh, guillotined clergy and laity and executed couple, 200,000 people for staying true to their faith. The communists of the Soviet Union starved 6 million Ukrainian kulaks, the small farmers, by stealing all their uh, uh, food. And they sent millions of others into the gulag and slave labor. Over and over again, various groups tried to intimidate the, the, the faithful. And it continues on today with, you know, in our own country, in the United States right now, this year, 
well over 200 churches have been desecrated, some burned and attacked. And frankly, frankly, the FBI does not lift a finger to investigate these things. Shame on them. These are hate crimes. That's against federal law. They don't do a thing. And you almost sense that they agree with the desecrators. You almost wonder that. And this is where we have to have a very clear sense of looking as Jesus did, to stand up to evil, stand before it, and try to identify their false ideas, their false ideologies, their various evils, and false values. We should ask ourselves, and as we pray over this, what do we fear? Do we fear being canceled on uh, various social media? What do we fear? And as I already, uh, you know, we see that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, satanic tactics like, you know, accusation. Remember Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, now have the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. That's his tactic, accusation. I already mentioned John 8, it's John 8, 44, where we see that Jesus says, you are from your father the devil and you choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he, that is Satan, lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Murder, use of death, and deception are the ways of the enemy. And we have to be alert to recognizing those techniques. What do you fear from those forces that oppose our Catholic faith? Imagine yourself standing next to Jesus as he commands the demon. Are we aware of the fear the demons have of Jesus in his holy name? And what we have to be alert to is that I don't depend on my own power. I don't depend on my own wits. I depend on the wisdom of Jesus Christ who personifies wisdom. And I depend on his truth and on his divine power. And ask that Jesus come and live evermore in your heart so that you can truly say with John from 1 John 4, verse 4, the one who is within me is stronger than the one who is in the world. And you might want to conclude with the Lord's Prayer as a way to end that meditation. We're going to take a break. We'll come back in just a minute, so please stay with us.
right. I uh, want to encourage you to join me for EWTN Live tomorrow. We'll have a guest, Father Jeffrey Kirby. He's a moral theologian and a professor of theology at Belmont Abbey College over in North Carolina. And he wants to talk about how the church is our mother and teacher. And as she has those roles as mother and teacher, she also has an answer to the social problems. We have to look and listen. So that's one of the things we want to do. Okay. So uh, start off with an email. And this is from Michael, who says, Dear Father Mitch, since the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Trinity, excuse me, since the Holy Trinity is co-equal and co-eternal, how then do we explain Proverbs 8, verses 22 to 31, which talks about the creation of the wisdom of God, which is applied to Jesus, the second person of the Blessed Trinity? There's something that we have to keep very cl clearly in mind. There is this reality of created wisdom. Some wisdom is created, and wisdom is put into creation. There's a tremendous amount of wisdom in creation. The fact, for instance, that we have a number of constants in physics is absolutely amazing. No matter where you go in the universe, the speed of light is the same. And the number of the elements is the same. The, the elements on the table of uh, elements. Um, you have, you know, uh, gravity is the same, and that's what makes it possible for there to be atoms. The fact that that combination of the constant of the speed of light and the constant of uh, gravity is what makes it possible for there to be gravitational pull that allows for atoms to exist. It's remarkable, remarkable. And so on with molecules and everything else. So those plus all the other constants, these these are, are, are key aspects of wisdom, but they are created and put into the universe. And furthermore, there is the fact of human reason, the ability of human beings to think rationally, to know facts, put them together, have memory. That is created wisdom. And that's what Proverbs chapter 8 is talking about. But there is also an uncreated wisdom and truth. Our Lord personifies truth. He's the Word of God from before all time. And as such, He, you know, contains eternal wisdom. And so, People make reference to the way that uh, wisdom is in, in Proverbs chapter 8 is like Jesus. But there's another quality between the uncreated wisdom and truth that is in God's nature. And all three persons, by the way, are truth and wisdom. And then there's also this other image 
of Christ. And they, they use that as an image. One other thing, too, just to keep in mind, the word that is used for created in that passage also can mean in Hebrew that he belongs to God. He's a, you know, that he, yeah, just belongs to God. So there's that element, too, that some people have brought out in that passage. But I would, you know, say that created wisdom is an image and, and a mere reflection of the eternal wisdom that is Jesus Christ and is personified in him. Okay? All right. We have a question from our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? Winchester, Virginia. Good to have you. Thank you. And besides things going on in the Commonwealth of Virginia, what can we do for you today? Um, as we read in Mark 5, 7, the demoniac addressed Jesus as the Son of the Most High God. Mm -hmm. So he recognized him as mm -hmm. God. But I heard that when Jesus was driven by the Spirit mm -hmm. into the wilderness after he was baptized by John the Baptist, that Satan couldn't have known that Jesus was God, mm -hmm. or otherwise he wouldn't have tried to tempt him because he would have known that you can't tempt God. So mm -hmm. I was wondering if Satan at that time knew Jesus was God. Here's, here's something um, we have to keep in mind. Uh, based on experience of ourselves in our own arrogance and of other people in their arrogance, I do not find it difficult to believe that Satan, in his arrogance, would try to tempt God. Notice how he says in the temptations, if you are the Son of God. Notice he's putting it as a conditional sentence. Come on. He, he, having grown up in Chicago, it reminds me of some of the young men I came across in the city. Come on. You want a piece of me? You know, they're just sort of asking for it. Um, you know, and uh, emphasize that situation up carefully. Our Lord knew that he could take it on. But he asks that question, and he does think that he can tempt God. And he thinks he can even get God to worship himself as a creature. He says, in fact, I'll give you all these kingdoms. It's very important. Our Savior never denies that Satan is in control of the kingdoms of the world. He doesn't deny that. He recognizes it. But he said, that's not the way I'll get those kingdoms. I'll get those kingdoms, but not with, as your gift for breaking the commandments, because you shall not worship anybody but the Lord your God. And so, yeah, I think that Satan had enough arrogance to try and tempt Jesus. Not unlike a lot of people who have the arrogance to tempt Christians to commit sin today. You know, they you know, think that we'll accept power, money, etc. And at the expense of the lives of babies, the elderly, the enslavement of people, all this, they, they, they go along with that. And, you know, that kind of arrogance is what we might be seeing there. All right, let us now go to a call. We have Patty 
calling from the great state of Michigan. Patty, what can we do for you? Patty, are you there? I don't think we got her. Um, yeah, so um, we'll, we'll go over to an email then. I saw we lost the connection. Uh, let's take this email from Jim in Indiana. Dear Father Mitch, both of my elderly parents were devout Slovak Catholics. They made it clear to do not resuscitate when it was their time. They died peacefully in their home years apart with their children beside them each time with home hospice. When morphine was administered to ease their pain, they both died within three days because they were sleeping and could not eat or drink. I feel as if hospice is a sort of assisted death sentence. Your thoughts and what are the Catholic Church's views on this? Um, you know, Jim, this is something that we have to be, um, you know, alert to. You're dealing with a couple of issues. And this is called palliative care, where you help a person to not feel pain as they get toward the end of their lives, so depending on the kind of illness they have. Now, even if the morph morphine is given to them to help them rest and be pain-free, they can still get intravenous uh, nourishment. So that, but, you know, one of the things that happens is that other parts of the system are shutting down. So this is um, uh, something that we have to be alert to. We, you know, you can give enough morphine and kill somebody, but I don't, I, I certainly would hope that that would never be the case and professionals that work at uh, organizations like hospice. Um, this is something where um, we have to, and we can talk to them and say, look, no, we, we do want our loved ones not to feel pain. And that, that, that's merciful. Now, that will have an effect on how long they live, but you're not trying, so long you're not trying to kill them, but no matter what you do, you know, you're caught in a difficult situation. This is not easy, but you, I think to uh, take the approach that you can administer different levels of morphine to ease the pain. And you can tell when they're agitated with pain and you can give that to them. Um, and there's, there's, the church certainly teaches that palliative care is morally acceptable. Um, a person can also morally re reject that palliative care. You can reject having the morphine if you want. You'd be choosing to suffer, but you can do that. Okay, So it's, it, you have to pay attention to each patient and how much pain they're in and try to ease so that the pain is eased without causing the death uh, on purpose. That's the, the balance you're trying to get. And that's where you have to talk to your doctors as well, okay? 
Now, we, we did lose Patty, uh, who was calling in, but she did let us know what her question is. And she said, would an exorcism help with a drug addiction? No, that won't help for the addiction. If a person is demonically uh, you know, possessed, it would help. But that even then, it wouldn't get rid of the addiction. The addiction is a distinct issue. And a, addiction to drugs or alcohol have, has to be addressed on its own terms. There are different ways to treat addicted people. And uh, it's, again, very important to be in contact with a medical doctor, but also groups like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous have a lot of experience of helping people to overcome their addictions and working with them on the addiction. The, what's necessary is that God be the one who is stronger than the drug or the alcohol, and that He is the only one that can help them. And the alcoholics recognize. Just make sure that nobody talks you into a false understanding of God. Only the one God, the true God, can really help. All right, but the Lord has given me limits of time, and he's helping me right out of here. So may the Lord bless you all and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And do remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, because that's the only way we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. Thank you, and God bless. Mm -hmm.